Hello, one and all, and welcome to Film Fragments, a podcast where we take fragments of an actor, director, and genre and tell you our favorites from their catalog. My name is Brian Stuffield. I'm your host, and I'm very excited to welcome you guys to this week's episode of Film Fragments, where today we're going to be talking about our favorite movie remakes. The new Mean Girls hits theaters this week. It is a remake, but it's also not a remake. To clarify specifically what this new Mean Girls is, it's an adaptation of the Broadway musical, which was an adaptation of the 2004 film, which was an adaptation of a book from 2002. So I guess you could consider this a remake, reboot, revival of Mean Girls, whatever you want to call it. But the point is today we are talking about our favorite movie remakes. And you know what? This happens in Hollywood all the time. Something that we love or something we hate gets revived and remade for a new audience to hopefully better the quality but most of the time it tends to worsen the quality of the original film however there are plenty of wonderful remakes that we have received and today we're going to be delving into why those are our favorites in the world of remakes but before we get into talk about that i would love to introduce today's guest our guest today is daniel barrios he is the host of the movies pod daniel welcome to the show Oh, a long time coming, man. It is an honor to be here. I'm very happy to show up and talk some good old fashioned remakes, reboots, seaboots. As when you were going on that, all I heard was that nine inch nail song where he just goes, I am a copy of a copy of a copy. Oh man. Good times, man. It's wonderful to be here. I'm very happy to have you on here. I, I think before we get into talking a little bit about our topic and yourself. It would be really fun to kind of tell the audience about how about a year ago <laughs> we were in the middle of recording that episode together and then things went down. So um that was fun. <laughs> Remember that, that like was... it was yesterday? <laughs> me seeing your face on this side of the screen absolutely lets me know that yes, it was a year ago that the person I'm introducing to the stage decided to throw a tantrum mid-record and elected to kind of make that episode difficult and somehow prompt uh, a sabbatical of sorts for yours truly. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. We've never had a child before on the podcast, so it's, it's, it's funny that now the child made his appearance and everything once again. But it's great. It's great to have you on here that we're finally able to do this and talk about these movies and what have you. But before we get into talking about our topic, I would just love to give you the chance to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about what you do over at the Movies Pod, what got you into film, and why you love it so much. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I have been talking about movies online for a little bit more than a decade now. Uh, started when I watched Perks of Being a Wallflower, just felt the need to write a review about it. I've loved movies forever. One of my earliest memories is grabbing an Entertainment Weekly with The Lost World, Jurassic Park on it, and uh, just be mesmerized by that front cover. My dad would take me to the movies almost every every week. One of my first memories, just period, is going to the theater, seeing a gigantic poster of Bride of Chucky hanging over the marquee, and that just kind of drawing me in. I, When I think about the kind of art that I absolutely adore and love, 
it's just movies. I have so many DVDs and Blu-rays tossed in a corner that I haven't watched yet. I collect movies like some people collect books. <laughs> just put them on a shelf, and eventually I'm going to get to it. And uh, the movies was uh, kind of like offshoot of many things I've tried to do. I've done YouTube. I've done a podcast called the Daniel Barrios podcast. And then that sort of esoteric, like who looks at that podcast title and thinks it's a movie podcast. So I went the complete opposite direction, decided to make it a, a podcast called the movies. And that's just it's been a long time uh, coming to this moment, and a lot of life has happened. And I'm, I think the best thing about it is that no matter what has happened in my life, whether it be moving eight hours south or having two kids or being married or like becoming like a full-fledged adult for the first time, I'm a huge believer in the fact that art finds you when you need it the most, and the movies have always been there. Yeah, man, definitely, definitely. I love the show, and I'm so glad that you're coming back and reviving the show and podcasting again. It's been a joy following your podcasting journey this last year, year and a half since discovering your content. And I'm really glad that you're here today to talk about your love for movies and then join me in discussing this topic. So, you know, going into the topic of remakes... There's obviously a lot of conflicting feelings whenever something gets remade, even though it's like, why do we need a remake of something when we already have the original? Again, like I said at the top, sometimes remakes could better a movie's quality or could worsen a movie's quality. So in your case, what do you look for whenever you're sitting down to watch a remake? Do you look for it to stay true to the original? Do you look for something that does its own thing? What exactly do you look for whenever you watch a remake? I'll answer this twofold. My ideal remake is a movie that doesn't work the first time, but has promise and can be expanded upon. Uh, for my quick uh, dichotomy of potential remakes, I want to remake both David Cronenberg's Scanners and The Hot Chick. Because I think there's possibility there for both of those movies to be, like, really, really good. Uh, I won't expand upon that. Y'all can live with that and just think about that in your brains. Uh, ideally, I would want to remake something that doesn't work. But if I'm going in to see something that I love, I want the spirit, sort of the intangibles of what you have in a movie, uh, the tone the sense of humor, the aggression, the emotional like burden behind the original. I want that there. But, you know, taken in a completely different direction. Uh, in one way, we can talk about remakes. Scott Pilgrim, that series, I think is the best example of a remake ever because you've got the books that do their own thing. And then you've got the movie that does its own thing, and the TV show does something entirely different. What I found I really enjoyed about that was what happens if we start from the same point and then just go a different direction? Because ultimately, coming from the same mind and coming uh, maybe from a character that has sort of like a cyclical need, you know, uh, 
a lot of superheroes are like this, like the big one I can think of Thor, that Thor always has to learn the lesson of responsibility. But how does he learn to be responsible? He learns it in different ways. You know, first movie, he's learning to be responsible, just, you know, thinking of somebody other than himself. The second one, he's taking on the responsibilities of being a king. And the third one, he's taking the responsibility of not just like the kingdom, but what it means to actually be a good leader and like protect your people and etc. And then the fourth one, you know, spoiler alert for that movie, whatever, uh, he learns to be a responsible father and res learns to be a responsible lover. And so if you start from the same point and you take your idea just in slightly different directions, I find I really enjoy those remakes. And there are a couple of those. I think there's at least, there's at least two of those kinds of remakes on my list. You know, it's funny because whenever someone asks me what I look for in the remake, it's kind of similar to what you said to where if I see a movie being remade, it's a movie that I would I would picture as something that needed improvement that has potential to be something great. And we've gotten some remakes that have found a way of being loads better than the original predecessor. But, of course, we get remakes that are so incredibly unnecessary. It is surprising whenever we do get remakes that we're like, why are we getting this when the original is so good and whatever? But then some of these remakes turn out to be pleasant surprises because I will say, and I told this to Daniel right before we started recording, all five films that I have on my list today are films where I haven't seen the original. So this is not going to be a scenario to where I'm like, well, in the original, it was this, and then the remake, it was that. So I'm not going to play a comparison game and what have you when given my list. But I have to just say that as films on their own, these are great movies, which is why I'm putting them in my top five. So I just say without further ado, let's get into our top five remakes so daniel what is your number five favorite remake of all time uh number five favorite remake of all time is a movie i did not think was actually a remake until looking through and that's coda uh directed by sean Hader, based off of the i think 2014 movie la famille bellier which is a french movie which tackles similar ideas in that film it's a daughter of She's the only hearing daughter, and she's got a deaf deaf parents and deaf brother. And she is sort of like learning to embrace her voice and sing and wants to be a singer, but her family relies on her a lot for translation. And so that's sort of coming of age thing of like, I want to do my own thing, but, you know, I have the ties at home. And where that movie differs from Coda is that that cast actually has all hearing actors, and the hearing actors are, you know, acting deaf. And there's a, there's a couple little different nuances too. Like in uh, Coda, the brother's a little bit older. I think he's older than, uh, uh, M uh, what the fuck's her name? Amelia Jones? Am I wrong? Yeah, Amelia wrong. Jones. Yeah, so he's older than Amelia Jones is. And in the original movie, he's younger. And so that sort of... Uh, there's more in Coda for the brother to do because, you know, his parents rely on the daughter for something that he can never give. But he's reaching that age where he wants to be his own man and take on more responsibility and sort of his push to try and get that uh, 
I guess, praise or like that for his parents to believe in him. It's like, no, we don't need like this trend. Like we don't need to be reliant on our daughter, on your daughter. Like we can do this ourselves. We can make it work. So it's a way more interesting character there. Uh, honestly, watching the family Billier, it was like, do you, have you ever seen the family guy sketches where they're making fun of Italian people? Probably. Where like they're gesticulating so hard. It's like and there's so much gesticulation in these characters. They always feel like they're playing to the rafters. They're like on a stage, despite the movie itself being pretty into it. Like they'll be in a room. Uh, in this case, I think the big the uh, argument in the original is that the dad wants to be a mayor to sort of preserve agricultural farmland they're uh, farmers they're milk farmers in uh, the original and he starts running for mayor and his wife is hyping him up but she's like really playing to the rafters in a room of like maybe 10 people and it started to get caricaturish to me and there's a really really weird bit where like <laughs> There's a cow that's born, and its name is Obama because he's the black calf. And I was like, all right, sure. But then later when uh, the dad is talking to the daughter about the prospects of being mayor, he's like, why do you think they wouldn't want me because I was deaf? He's like, well, look at Obama. He became president. And I'm like, sir, are you trying to compare being black to being deaf as a handicap? Like – there's some cultural weirdness in that original movie, which thankfully I think Coda just makes it a little bit more honest. And, you know, a lot of the comedy, which there are similar scenes, like the in Coda, you've got the scene where Amelia Jones is translating for her parents at the doctors, and it gets awkward because of what she has to translate, talking about their sex life. In the French movie, it's kind of really farcical, and it's Again, so to the rafters where, like, she's translating an argument between her parents that's embarrassing, whereas in this one, it's embarrassing because they're talking about, like, the itches and, like, the groin stuff, and she has to convey that to the doctor, who himself is clearly embarrassed. Like, it feels like more of a natural conversation in that than in this movie, which just seems like it's playing up the, oh, my gosh, they're deaf and they're misunderstandings. Isn't that so funny? <laughs> and so Coda came to me as like uh i guess watching the original coda became this sort of like oh this is what happens when you have people trying to just tell the story honestly and do it with their own experience and put in the proper representation in place and not play the fact that someone is deaf as a joke and lo and behold, it wins Best Picture. And lo and behold, it gains, you know, Best Supporting Actor. It's it's weird, too. Like, they even cast the movie. At least the parents look really similar uh, in Coda to the La Famille Bellier. But when you're watching both movies side by side, it feels like one of them is a parody of the other. And it's strange that the remake feels like the original. So Coda is not on my list of remakes. I like Coda. I'm not as high on it as other people are. I will say that it's not a best picture winner that pissed me off. 
like it pissed off a lot of people. Um, how? I oh, that's the thing. How do you get mad? at this movie the only reason you get mad at it is the context of your favorite movie losing yeah i mean like i mean do i think it it would have been my pick for best picture no it wouldn't have am i annoyed that won best picture no i'm not annoyed that it won best picture has it been forgotten about the movie it has nobody has really talked about since it won best picture but i i think it's i think it's a sweet film it's very endearing i love 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 amelia jones and it's so much Oh yeah, and I was very, 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 very happy when Troy Kotzer won that supporting actor Oscar. I thought that was a very deserving win, and that sequence where she and him are sitting on the trunk of the car and he's feeling her vocal cords as she's saying—that's a very beautiful scene. Like that was probably my favorite scene of the entire film, and yeah, that that really moved me so much. Yeah, that's one of the things that the movie gets over the original as well, is that the dad seems to be in the background just, like, begging for attention, whereas Troy Kotzer in CODA is just kind of observing everybody, and you can tell, like, he's got his own masterminded plan to, like, get his own business up and running, and he's always observing people. Like, it's a way more interesting performance. It just commands attention by doing less. And I don't know, something about just – I really do think it's the approach. I really do think it's that they are trying to play this experience straight. And God, both sides now just wrecks me, especially when she starts signing. Oh, my God. Oh. That movie just makes me smile. Just makes it's, me smile, man. It's it's so good. It's so good. So my number five is a completely different film from Coda. I'm going to go with Ocean's Eleven from 2001. Um, this is one of my favorite films directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's actually very high up for me in terms of films from him. I honestly think that this this could be my favorite thing that he's directed. And it's so funny. I did a Steven Soderbergh episode super early in the show, and I don't even remember my list. That just comes to show how long ago <laughs> that was. But I have not seen the original. Like I said at the top, I have not seen the originals for any of these movies. But I love myself a good heist film. And I think this is so entertaining. It lives up to the hype of being a great heist movie. The heist itself is really fantastic to watch. And I think the reason why this film works as beautifully as it does is not only because of how Soderbergh brings this to life, but the cast in this film, These, this Ocean's Trilogy would not be what it is if it weren't for the incredible cast that is put together here. George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Bernie Mac. Uh, Casey Affleck, Don Cheadle, Scott Kahn, um, Elliot Gould, hell of a cast, hell of a cast. And I think what makes this film really, I, I genuinely believe with every fiber of my being, the reason why this works as well as it does is that it's just some of the slickest studio filmmaking ever put to screen to where we don't really get studio helmed films like this to come out anymore because a lot of them just feel like they're being made for money and that everyone's just there for a paycheck. But you could tell that everybody in this cast had a ball making this film and that they had the time of their lives being on this set for however many months they shot the film. And I don't know how it's as good as it is. I really genuinely believe that it's as a also shout out to Julia Roberts. Also, I cannot forget to shout out Julia Roberts as well, but there's never a mo moment in this movie 
where it's dull. Everything goes by so quickly. It speeds along to the point where by the time the movie ends, you're like, that's it. I want to spend more time with these characters. And, you know, there's a great um, exchange in the movie where he says, does he make you laugh? And she responds, he doesn't make me cry. And it's films like that where you know that there's so much heart somehow in this heist comedy that is so sexy. And everyone here is so sexy, too. I just have to, um, you know, I just like every time I watch this film, I. I don't know. It's just. It's so brilliantly executed, and that's a major credit to Soderbergh. I think Soderbergh is one of the finest filmmakers of our time, and that's I love a that he is. Fact. And I love that he is someone that does literally everything. You would and never, th- you would never think that the same guy who made Sex Lies and Videotape would go on to make a film like Ocean's Eleven, would go on to make a film like Friggin' Magic Mike, and yet. He's one of the great voices of our time. And there's a reason why everybody looks up to him and respects him and why so many up-and-coming filmmakers are inspired by him. So Ocean's Eleven is fantastic. It's outstanding. I adore this film so much. On Letterboxd, I think I have it as a four and a half right now, but I feel like on the next watch, it will probably be given the five-star treatment. So Ocean's Eleven is my number five. Are you going to pass or is this not on your list? Uh, it's on my shelf, hidden within like a bunch of boxes of things that I haven't quite seen yet. But I will echo what you're saying about Soderbergh. The Soderbergh movies I've loved are, I got into them rather recently. We watched Logan Lucky early. We watched Logan Lucky, and that movie is basically Country Fried Ocean's Eleven with Daniel Craig giving an extraordinary performance if you do a daniel craig episode you gotta read up oh my god (laughs) is it 20 or is it 30 we are dealing (laughs) with science here beautiful stuff uh i'm a big fan of kimmy look the pandemic soderbergh which is super paranoid and he's a cinematographer and he's getting some weird ass shots in there i like no sudden move like i think uh i think i described soderbergh actually the first episode i did coming back for the revival was soderbergh's the good german which is a black and white noir set and stylized with the authenticity of a 1940s noir with so much effort put into it that he's even using techniques that he would use to cheat like he'd be shooting this supposedly war-torn city and realize that if you wanted to keep the broken glass the same what you would do is just decorate the windows in the background with black cutouts so that it, the shots would stay the same and that guy is just so ridiculously inventive and he is constantly going for it every single chance he gets that god i i have nothing but respect for soderbergh and uh oceans 11 is something that i've got to remedy really really fucking fast so no it is not on my list but it probably should be <laughs> Hey, it's totally fine. We can't put everything on the list, even though you're wrong for not including it on your list. But now let's go into a number four. So what is your pick for your number four? My number four is Chuck Russell's 1988 film, The Blob. Uh, The Blob, 
I was introduced to the 1958 version, I think uh, directed by Irvin Winkler Jr. Uh, I was introduced to that just off of YouTube and I popped it on and it was this beautiful, like technicolor looking ode to the nostalgia of like small town America and the celebration of teenagers in a time when teenagers were normally looked at movies like the rough ruffians or a generation misguided and the introduction of Steve McQueen. And you've got these wonderful practical effects that are going on with something that just looks like a melted Jolly Rancher on screen. And that was such a charming little movie for me that really capitalized on sort of like the red panic. And it was a timely film, despite the fact that it's a, such a ridiculous movie about just this alien creature lands in a small town. It eats and consumes anything. It doesn't have a brain. It doesn't have like, it doesn't have a face. You know, you can't kill the blob because it's literally just a, a mass so flash forward to Chuck Russell, director of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Uh, he brings this version of The Blob to life, and it is a, it is a timely movie. It's uh, A lot of people have compared uh, a lot of what's going on in this blob, the mentions of biological warfare, fear of anthrax, the AIDS scare, when you're watching how The Blob just like consumes people you know in the 50s movie a lot of it is left up to imagination but you know it's the 1980s so they're gonna go for it people melt and one of the things i love about this movie is that it does not cheap out the character of the blob does not think does not feel it is just its only thing is consuming if there are kids in its way the kid is gone because that's just a de facto thing of life and it, it's so much scarier in that movie because you see the true like horror. You're not pulling away from it. You're not shying from it that the blob is able to do. So it's more intense than the original. And it's also another subversion because this movie does introduce reintroduce small town America. And this movie does, you know, this movie opens with like a football game. And uh, you think that, you know, Who's going to be your hero? Is it going to be the Steve McQueen type? The sort of clean cut, really nice dude. He's a little mischievous, but nothing to – like he's not hardened or edges. No, the hero of this movie is going to be a street rat. It's going to be some punk. And then you've got the girlfriend of that guy in the beginning who's teaming up with the ruffian in order to beat the blob. And this movie goes on a bunch of twists to get you to that certain point. It's some of the best special effects I've ever seen in my entire life that still hold – still hold up today uh in a i'm i'm a i'm a sucker for small town horror man you know you give me killer clowns from outer space you give me the blob you give me fucking dr giggles and slugs and i'm totally there and so this movie just took a movie or a style of movie that i love so dearly twisted it on his head fucked with it spun like ripped its skull out squeezed it juiced it and milked it into the blob and uh i love it I have not seen The Blob, the original, or the remake, so I unfortunately do not have this on my list. But I will say that regarding the original, I have tempted, 
I have had so much temptation to buy that Criterion because the cover art in that Criterion is Do fucking it. sick. Do it. And I haven't seen Ocean's Eleven, but God damn it, I've got that Criterion of the Blob. That's the first Criterion I ever bought. The the cover art is just so enticing that it makes me just want to blind buy it. Maybe the next sale, I will absolutely do it. Or I'll probably maybe watch the movie before the sale just so I don't buy the movie. Then I watch it and I go, wow, I wasn't a fan of it at all. 20 bucks down the drain. But um, no, that's a very interesting pick. I've heard a lot of people who even love the original Blob like the remake as well so i think it's very cool i do have a horror film on my list but it's a little higher on my list so we'll talk about that later on can't wait to do that so my number four is a completely different remake from yours (laughs) we're going from a horror film to a period piece i'm gonna go oh shit with the 2019 adaptation fuck of little women (laughs) Damn it! Hang on. Do I have to? Do I have to change this? <laughs> Hold on. Before before you decide that, let me say let me say my piece about this movie. Let me say my piece. So, I have talked about this show verbatim. I talked about this movie verbatim on this show. I adore this movie so much. This was my first introduction to the Little Women story. I was obviously aware of what Little Women was, but if I'm being honest with myself, before I saw this adaptation five years ago, oh my god. Um, <laughs> We're old. Um, this movie came out literally like two months before the world went to shit. <laughs> that's that's it was how, a happier time. Like, Parasite, seriously. one best picture. I know. Parasite, one best picture. We had a new Martin Scorsese film, a new Noah Baumbach film, a new Greta Gerwig film. Yeah, new Robert Eggers film, a new Safdie Brothers film. We literally had it all back in 2019. Anyway, <laughs> Little Women. Um, so I have not seen any other adaptation besides this one. That was the case in 2019. That's still the case now in 2024. I know that's sacrilegious because everybody loves the Winona Ryder film that came out in the 90s, and I'm sure it's great. And I definitely want to watch it. It's a massive, massive, massive blind spot for me. Um, but I really love this film so much because for someone like me who had not read the book, who had not seen any prior adaptation, going into the movie expecting one thing and I got something completely different. Now, I had no idea walking into this movie that it was going to approach this story in a nonlinear fashion. And obviously, when I saw the movie the first time, I was very confused. I was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Why? What's happening? But then about like 20 minutes and I'm like, oh, okay, I get I get where she's going. And honestly, it made it more effective. I've said this before many times on this podcast whenever I talk about this movie. I think the approach to it that Greta brought to it was really outstanding. And I think if she had told it in the linear fashion that we had already seen in other adaptations, I don't think this would have stuck stuck the land in the way that it did. And again, I cannot comment on any previous Little Women adaptation. I cannot say that this is the best one without having watched any of the other ones. That's not fair for me to say that. But I feel like it's going to be very hard to watch a Little Women adaptation going forward that tops what Greta Gerwig and her entire team 
brought to life. This is a beautiful film. It's incredibly moving. I cry every time I watch it. When Bob Oderkirk comes in and says, My Little Women, Waterworks oh, immediately, but also Fist Pump because it's Saul Goodman. And I just, uh, I always get so kiddy whenever man. I see him on screen. Um, I mean, everyone knocks their rolls out of the park. It's shot beautifully. The score by Alexander Desplat is so magical. The costumes, the sets, everything is unbelievable. I love that it was shot on film. I love that it was shot in the um, location of um, Louisa May Alcott. I love that it was shot around where the Alcotts uh, lived and everything. I think that's awesome and everything. Um, And this movie unrelated to the movie itself but kind of related this movie gave me one of my favorite on-set photos of all time where it's timothy chalamet florence Pugh, meryl streep and greta gerwig in wendy's during a break when they're filming and you know (laughs) that to me is one of my favorite on-set photos of all time so i just have to shout that out but i i think that considering that little women have been adapted so many times prior to this and the fact that Greta Gerwig delivered a pretty fantastic adaptation of it that people critics and audiences universally loved that's a testament to what she's able to do as a filmmaker and it's crazy considering the fact that this had been adapted so many times prior so people like how is like the 20 adaptation of little women gonna be anything great that we haven't seen already and greta added her own spin to it she was faithful to the source material and did something very very beautiful and it was absolutely wonderful i love little women 2019 I think it's a masterpiece across the board. It's one of those movies that's very hard to dislike. And I'm sure there's someone out there that doesn't like this movie. And if you're if you're listening and you don't like the movie, let's be honest. (laughs) Exactly. It probably is. But yeah, I love this Little Women adaptation so much. So when I brought that this was on my list, you were like scrambling around. So you I obviously was. must be a hater of this movie. Am I right? <laughs> uh, to d- to sort of answer the question for folks at home, I elected not to p- to change my list last minute just be- to celebrate more movies. But uh, yeah, I have a few. I have a few people to thank for me watching this movie. The first one being my wife, who watched it kind of like as a work thing like a work outing and she was like oh this movie little women it's like it's really good like it's really really good and then uh when i brought nicole ackman onto the podcast love nicole to share the four films that make her who she is little women was on there and said all Mm -hmm. right this is officially time i gotta sit down she is she's the biggest little women 2019 stan of all the little women 2019 stands longest episode i've ever done and well well, when you give her when you give her the opportunity to talk about that movie, she will go on and on and on about it. I'm telling you, like I'm sitting on the carpet and I'm like, I, I love, I love Nicole and I love her mind. And I, and I love how invested she is about the details mm-hmm. of this movie. Yeah. But, like it was, it was three hours in. I'm just like, Oh God, I've been up for like 17 hours. Shit. Uh, but similarly is the reason why I think Little Women works is because Greta Gerwig embraces it not just as a remake of the material, but like sort of the perspective of Louis May 
Louise May Alcott, taking some of the Alcott's journals, using that to help inform the writing, really getting into the head of what it's like to live in that time. And so you're not just taking a book, you're taking the context behind it. You're taking the life that wrote it. I think you, uh, oh God, I'm probably going to miss this. In the opening of the script, she's describing what time it is in new york and it's like post civil war and it's like a time of change and there's so much that's going on and joe is just running not for i, I think it says joe is running not to not for any purpose or whatever but just to do it and just to it gives you that momentum of what that character is going to be what the time is like what the perspective of everyone living in that life is and i love that you know, she gives all of the sisters their time to live their own lives, and none of it feels like it's a, like it's a waste. You know, the biggest change I hear from people in this version is Amy, Florence Pugh's character, which is given so much, I guess, more understanding and compassion than other uh, than other adaptations have. Although I will say, when she burned the book. I remember feeling in my soul that I would have like you ever watch Fresh Prince and you watch Uncle Phil throw out Jeff out of the front door. Oh That's yeah, when exactly he throws out Jazz. Like, oh yeah. When he throws out Jazz. I'm I'm I I almost fucking threw Florence Pugh out of the door. Like how fucking dare I you? I literally wanted too fucking far. I, in that moment I was like I want Florence Pugh to burn right now, not the book. This is why your parents and your sister got carbon monoxide, motherfucker. Oh my god, just oh god. But man, it's it, isn't it just so good? It's like how can one person watch it and not like it? It'd be so moved. It's everything is just so you perfect what, in it. You know what one of my favorite shots of all time in cinema is? It's um so one of the things that I heard is that great cinematography, you can kind of draw it. So like uh let's see, let's do it this way. So like you draw the little arch here. And then there's the staircase that's kind of like slowly like winding up into the corner here. Mm -hmm. And then like in the middle of that archway is uh, uh, Eliza Scanlon. Uh, by the way, Eliza Scanlon, shout out. If you haven't watched Baby Teeth, Baby Teeth is fucking great. Uh, the 2020 movie. Anyway, Eliza Scanlon is playing the piano in that back part, and then Chris Cooper slowly sneaks down, sits on the stairs, and just listens with sort of just this warmth because for the first time in so long, there's music in the house again. And I just thought the, there's just something so aesthetically pleasing about the curves in that shot and the perspectives from the background and the foreground that it's just composed. Like, I want that specific shot in my house. I can't explain to you why I love that thing so much. I think it is literally just perfectly constructed. And it, yeah, I, you know, yeah. and it can make you cry because Chris Cooper's so fucking good in it. Yeah, he's he's unbelievable in it. Yeah, Little Women is so good. It's so good. So now going into our number threes, what is your pick? Uh, my number three is John Carpenter's 1982 classic, The Thing. Uh, I just uh, I haven't finished watching The Thing from Another World. I watched it on the way home from work today. And just trying to get a vibe for it and understand, you know, what is it about this movie that Carpenter differs from? And there's a line in it when um, 
the main doctor, Dr. Carrington, who's the, the original thing is very much a military versus scientist movie. It has more in common with like something like day of the dead than the actual thing that it's based off of. But, um, He's going like, look, you cannot confide in anyone about the information about this alien. And I think that's what Carpenter grabbed on to. You cannot confide in anyone because it's not just that the thing is, quote, an intelligible carrot. In the original movie, the thing is made out of vegetable matter, which allows it to survive bullet wounds. And it could, it basically looks like... Boris Karloff's Frankenstein got hit repeatedly with a shovel, and it has, like, a claw with, like, little flowery spikes at the end of it. And you don't see that until maybe about 70% of the movie is done. Like, you can't imagine that somebody like Spielberg didn't think of this while watching – well, uh, directing Jaws because very much this is a slow burn. This is getting you introduced to this group of military men, and there's like a weird romance subplot about like the – honestly, it gets kind of horny in uh, the North Pole. Like at one point, I think the romance, the love interest like ties the captain up to a chair with some rope. Like it's – it could get really hot if you just decide to hang out there for a little bit longer. But uh, – that movie is such a slow burn, and it's about slowly discovering like little bits and pieces of what the thing does, whereas uh, Carpenter's 1982 movie is so much about the paranoia, and it's so much about not trusting people, and it's so not about trusting yourself. That's one of the great things about body horror is that inability to trust your own corporeal sense. It's uh, understanding the separation between the mind and the soul and body like God. This is going to get weird for a second. Uh, I watched my cat die, and the moment she – like the moment the doctor went and did the thing, and I saw my cat go, it was that moment in my brain that really cemented, oh, the thing laying in front of me, this thing of like skin or whatever, that's not my cat. And the way that my mind facilitated that so quickly – makes body horror as a genre so understandable because really we're just you know mind and soul piloting meat suits and when your meat suit is betraying you when you can't trust that when you can't trust your own mind to control whatever you're doing that's terrifying that's why movies like texas chainsaw massacre works that's why anything cronenberg's done pretty much works you know and the great thing about uh the thing is that it's playing off of that, it's playing off of the sort of like Lord of the Flies, like being on your own in tribal crowns. You can't trust anybody at lest, you know, they be the thing. So in the original movie, it's easy to find the thing because he looks like Boris Karloff Frankenstein with a shovel in his face and like spiky claws. But the thing in this one, I guess playing off of more that biological fear, the sort of like beginning of like uh Understanding these diseases that are cropping up around that time in the 80s, uh, you cannot see it. You just know that once you have it, it's like it's like rabies. The only way to actually test for something to have rabies is unfortunately to get the head cut off. So once you have it, it's done. And that terror, that 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 terror of knowing like, did you did you watch this movie during the pandemic? 
tapping into the fear of knowing that death is just around the corner and it's all around you and you can't even trust whether you have death or not that is palpable and you know when you look at the original the effects in it are they're fun they're fun they're really more like creature effects or whatnot but they're not scary Whenever you see what the thing does to a dog, or whether it takes that guy's head and like stretches him all the way up to the ceiling, just one look at that lets you know I never, ever want to be anywhere near that thing again. Really, it's like the Iron Man saying, like, the best weapon is one you only have to fire once. And the thing about Carpenter's, the thing is that it fires it 75,000 fucking times. Each to great aplomb, it's one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made. It's something that's relevant today. It's something that expands upon the original in a sense that is different from the original, but ultimately kind of leans into what the original movie is sort of going for, which is like, what is the other? What would happen if, you know, something that clearly... We can't even make our way to the moon for extended periods of time. You're telling me something that shows up millions of miles over here can't immediately take over? Are you really going to be that naive? That fear, man, uh, when you tap into it, leave it to a master like Carpenter to just crack out a motherfucking banger. That flops. It fucking flops. Alongside Blade Runner, it fucking flops. This is why John Carpenter doesn't direct anymore. This is why he fucking plays Xbox and smokes weed, because you people flopped his movies. Either that or because playing Xbox and smoking weed is fun. Anyway, that's my rant. That's, this is my TED Talk. Pass. Thank Christ. Let's fucking go, baby. <laughs> Let's fucking get it. So number three for me, uh, oh man, he's so excited. So my number three is hands down the funniest film that I have on this list Okay, from the year 1996, directed by Mike Nichols, written by, oh my God, why am I blanking on her name? Elaine May, The Birdcage. Oh, man. So, The Birdcage. This is a remake of the French film, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, so uh, <laughs> I'm not French, so just pardon me, please. Uh, La Cage L. Ox Follets. That's an embarrassing moment. It's probably going to go down as the most embarrassing moment of this podcast, me mispronouncing this movie. Everybody at home gift that shit all the way. Boomerang it. <laughs> so this is a remake of that film which was an adaptation of a play and this stars robert williams gene hackman nathan lane and diane weiss so we have robert williams playing a owner of a drag club in miami he is openly gay his partner in life is nathan lane who should have been nominated for an oscar for this movie just want to get that out of the way um and Robin Williams' son is going to get married to a character played by Kalisha Flockhart, who is the daughter of Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss. Now, the son 
told this girl that he's going to marry that he lives with his father and his mother. So basically it's a game where it's a game. It's a game where Robin Williams has to teach Nathan Lane how to kind of be straight. And there's a lot more to it though. I I don't want to really spoil the crux of this movie, but I just want to say that this is one of the funniest films I maybe have ever seen. So you brought up before about how like, I mean, this is a completely different thing, but you brought the thing and the pandemic and everything. I saw this movie for the first time during the pandemic, during the height of COVID. I was trying to watch a lot of these movies that I hadn't seen. And this had been on my watch list for a really long time. I had seen clips of it throughout the years. And I'm like, wow, this looks hysterical. Love Robin Williams, of course, Nathan Lane and Mike Nichols. He's so talented and everything. And my God, I mean, the screenplay is so beautifully written. It is so incredibly hilarious. I mean, I cannot stress enough how the comedy here works from frame one to the very last frame of this movie. And when I say that Nathan Lane should have been nominated for an Oscar for this, he absolutely should have been nominated for this because, first of all, it's time that we stop pushing aside comedic performances and recognize them by the Academy Awards. Now, we're about to get something like that where Ryan Gosling is on the verge of getting an Oscar nomination for playing Ken, which is very exciting because not only is it a great performance, but it's also a comedic performance, and it's about to be nominated alongside all these serious dramatic performances, which I I love to see. I love whenever these award shows, especially the Oscars, recognize comedic performances. Like, I'm not saying you have to give them the Oscar, but nominating them is a win on its own. And I love Robin Williams here. Nathan Lane, incredible. Like I said, the entire cast knocks it out of the park. So obviously, I don't know how faithful this is to the source material. I don't know if this is a flat-out, accurate adaptation of the original film, which, of course, is based on a play and everything. But I think that what makes Mike Nichols' version so good is that his direction combined with the screenplay, the wickedly smart screenplay, it creates something that shouldn't work the way it does. But there are so many moments that just make my heart explode with so much laughter. Nathan Lane, I really cannot stress enough. This is going to go on a huge tangent. Anytime Nathan Lane's in anything, he always brightens it up, regardless of how big or small he is in said project. He just screams from the top of his lungs. It's absolutely hysterical. His chemistry with Robert Williams is unbelievable. There were points when I, when I first watched this movie where I closed my eyes and I thought I was just listening to the genie and Timon being a married couple, which I kind of <laughs> loved. Um, like you're kidding, you're you're shaving your you're shaving yourself now. I didn't have time to wax now, didn't I? Just Nathan Lane would say lines that aren't necessarily funny, but it's because he delivers them in his typical Nathan Lane ways that make them just as funny as they should be. But yeah, I I love the movie. I think it's fantastic. And I had forgotten that it was a remake and it would have been such a disservice if I hadn't put this on the list. There's so much that I could say about the birdcage that hasn't, that has probably been said already, but I'm just blanking on what exactly to say. I, I really, 
I really love this movie so much. And if anyone listening has not seen The Birdcage, you need to do yourself a favor and check it out. So I'm going to assume this is not on your list, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on The Birdcage. Uh, no, Birdcage is not on my list, but it was something that I um, I think I watched for an episode specifically uh, for my boy Larry Chilson from Chili Boy Productions. Shout out. Um, I think what strikes me most about Birdcage is just how much of it is just a straight up romance. And one of those like, you know, you appreciate this more the longer you've been with somebody, but it's like the decision to choose them again and again, specifically for who they are. And a lot of this movie is Robin Williams asking Nathan Lane to not be who he is. And out of, you know, understanding of the scenario, uh, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, isn't Gene Hackman like a congressman or something? Yes. Like a like a Republican congressman. Like that's mm-hmm. a big, you know, especially in 1996, that's that's a big deal. We're not, you know, we talk about MAGA hatred now. We talk about uh, the the evangelicals uh, trying to warp our country through their idea of what the world is and eliminate anybody who doesn't fit that de facto definition. And uh, there's a genuine fear to be had in this. And so that's part of why Nathan Lane is like playing it up or like playing the way he is. But um, when you have these two, Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, just riffing with each other like an old couple that's what makes it funny it's not that nathan lane's talking about shaving because he didn't have time to wax it's because he's looking at robin williams it's just like you are making me do this Mm -hmm. you are making me late you are making me not prepared and it's it's a joke on you know being with someone and being late for the party or late to a function and like just going oh god you annoy the hell out of me but every single day i choose you like so lit- literally him on the park bench, yes oh, yes man. exactly but there's just so it. many lines where he's like look at me i'm this short fat insecure middle-aged thing i made you short <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, just so many lines. Armand Goldman, you old so-and-so. How about the Dolphins? Yeah. <laughs> and also, we've got to give credit to the staging of the uh, the, of the club. Mm-hmm. Just how beautiful that thing looks. And all the dance sequences, and all the sequences that are going in it. Just like traveling through it, almost like uh, Scorsese's Copacabana yeah. at one point. Like the opening and, of the yeah. movie where it's like zooming into Miami and everything. And then yeah. what, what song are they playing? Is it, isn't, isn't it We Are Family? Isn't that the song that's playing? I think, I think so. It's been a while. Yeah, and same. It's been a while it since I've seen it. But uh, yeah, just me falling in love with their love is what really gets me through uh what kind of like elevates that movie to me and yeah would make the sort of farcical situation so um so well grounded you just need to ground in some good old-fashioned heart i'm a softy what can i say <laughs> yeah it's so good it's so good so now our top two this is gonna be very very interesting I'm so curious to hear what your top two remakes are so tell us what your second favorite remake of all time is all right. Uh, ever since I've seen this movie, I only spell it one way, and uh, it's the word the, and then you spell it D E P A H 
T-E-D, The Departed. Because <laughs> I'm a Scorsese boy at heart. It's my favorite director. I've, I've loved him forever. This is one of those movies that's just a Sunday night, Sunday afternoon comfort for me. Just down and dirty, a cop flick. It's one of the most excellently casted films I've ever seen. I don't think we really talk. I kind of want to learn more about the specifics of casting. Because you're never going to get a better, more punchable Matt Damon than you are in this movie. And you're never going to get quite the proper blend of paranoid, guilty Leonardo DiCaprio than you get in this one. You're you're not going to get the uh, absurdly douchey but with slightly good intentions Mark Wahlberg than you are in this film you're never gonna get a Vera Farmiga that is just able to cut motherfuckers down to size with a glance than you do in this and we will never ever get someone who is able to lose their mind while like someone who, who is losing their mind should not be able to carry themselves so powerfully and so commanding in such a commanding way as Jack motherfucking Nicholson. And yet we get it. We get all of these directed by a master and you know, who cares if gimme shelter is overused? I don't give a shit. I love gimme shelter and I love uh, God. I was a Dropkick Murphys fan before watching this movie way later in life. And when I'm telling you, when shipping up to Boston fucking punches through your sound bar, you are ready to fight the world. Uh, the late, great Ray Stevenson in this one, eminent professional. Uh, it's just one of those movies that puts all the right uh, players in play, sets it off like a chess game. And then near the end, just decides to nuke the whole thing. And it's just a wonderful cat and mouse game. That's what's class. I'm going to just um, make a correction right now. Ray Stevenson's not in this movie. Is he not? Wait, no, it's I Ray Winstone. Did I fuck it? Oh, shit. Oh, Ray shit. Winstone, I... who is very much alive, by the way. Fuck. <laughs> Why the fuck? I swear to God, I was watching that today. Who the fuck is Ray Stevenson? Oh, it's that guy. Oh, okay. To to be fair, to be fair, if you look at those guys together, they could play brothers. They could play cousins. I think. I could I could see a little bit of resemblance. I could a little. Oh man, I feel like an asshole. I'm so sorry, Internet. <laughs> well, fuck. We <laughs> fuck <laughs> fucking hell. Okay, so now going into my number two. My number two is the thing. Yeah, I have a massive confession to admit. So it wasn't until I got a confession to make, and I put it up right here. That was beautiful, by the way. I I have it on my letterbox. So I did not see the thing. In its entirety, until this particular date, June 22nd, 2022. So it was only just almost two years ago when I finally saw this movie for the first time. 
Nice. And I will tell you that I went I went with my friend who also had never seen the movie before. We went to see it in theaters. They re-released it for its 40th anniversary. And I, when I had heard that the thing was being re-released in theaters, I was like, this will be a perfect opportunity to see the movie for the first time on the biggest, loudest screen possible. And I, and it wasn't even in New Jersey. that I had to travel into New York to go see it. And I was, honestly, I'm not going to lie, I was sick on my ass when I went oh, to go wow. see it. I, I was very, very sick. And then a few <laughs> days later, I found out I, I had COVID. So no, naturally, stop. it's like, oh my god, I'm you so screwed. Um, but anyway, no, I saw the movie and I was so riveted by it from the start until the very end. I have admittedly not delved completely deep into John Carpenter's filmography. I haven't seen everything he's done. There's just so much. Like, there's such a little time in the day to watch movies, and he's a filmmaker that I do want to set aside time to go through his filmography. But when you make two, in my opinion, masterpieces like Halloween and The Thing, you're already like one of the greats in my eyes. And I love the film so much. I mean, you brought up all the tension. There's so much tension here. It is a sci-fi horror. I'm a huge sci-fi film fan. So combining that with horror is something that I never thought that I would love as much as I did. Kurt Russell is so fucking badass in this movie. He is the He's man. So I mean, you you didn't really go into Kurt Russell that much when you were talking about the thing, which is totally valid because, I mean, there's just so many incredible things to say about the movie. But he is so great in this movie. The beard is absolutely iconic. Um, there's a reason why Kurt Russell is regarded as one of the coolest actors in the business, uh, even still to this day. Absolutely. Uh, Ennio Morricone's score is absolutely haunting and brutal yeah. in the best possible way. This picture left me so broken and paranoid simultaneously in the best possible way. And I did give a major shout out to Carpenter for doing that. And obviously, again, I have not seen the original film, so I cannot comment on how it is based on that. But I think that John Carpenter finds a way of creating one of the great sci-fi films of all time, one of the great horror films of all time. I am scared to ever go to a place that is very much heavy and snow because of this movie. <laughs> it's kind of equivalent to when I watched Jaws for the first time where I was terrified to go back to the beach um, because of right. that. But when I was watching this, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. I was so in awe by the practical effects utilized here to where I kept saying to myself, how the fuck did they pull this off? And this movie came out 40 fucking years ago. And I hate to say it, but a lot of the CGI here may look better than some of the CGI that we get now. I hate to say it, but it's true. And th this is going to be such a sappy thing for me to say. So I am so sorry to anyone that calls me Emotional. I'm a Pisces, so please cut me some slack. Um, I am a huge dog lover. I love oh, dogs no. so much. Oh, no. And when I saw this movie, Fuck. I had not known really nothing. anything. And, oh, and then going into the movie and then just seeing that scene with the dogs. TLDR, if you I'm, haven't watched this movie and you're a dog lover, be careful. Yeah, literally trigger warning. If you're a dog lover, just yeah. 
it's important to um note that if you do have a dog, do not watch this with your dog in the room. <laughs> um, it's very important. I'm really glad that I watched this in a theater, but I'm not gonna lie. As soon as I got home, I went to go give my dog the biggest hug in the entire world. I, it just literally made me cry so much, which is saying so much because I can watch movies where people are brutally killed like obsessively. But then when it comes to when it comes to animals, especially dogs, yeah. you don't fuck with me when it comes to that stuff. I don't like that stuff at all. But like, ju- but just really pushing this aside, this is an absolutely masterful film across the board. The acting, the writing, the directing, the visuals, the score, the sets, the costumes, everything. I mean, there's really no one like John Carpenter. And the practical effects here are really, really incredible. And I cannot believe that this movie's over 40 years old and somehow finds a way of being better than a lot of the films that have come out now when it comes to its CGI. But yeah, this is a film that needs to be seen. If you have not seen The Thing, you need to do yourself a favor and watch it. Don't be like me and wait a long time to watch it. Please watch it like now if you have the chance if it's on any streaming service watch it if it's not available on a streaming service you have fucking rent it or if you want to be really smart buy the movie i love the thing so much it's my second favorite remake of all time we also before we get off this topic we have to celebrate the name of the man who uh, shot it dean cundy Mm -hmm. a legend uh to be established in the names, you know, we talk about Roger Deakins a lot. We talk about, uh, I guess nowadays, the one kind of rising up in cinematographers like Linus Sandgren or stuff like uh, folks like that, uh, Rodrigo Prieto. But uh, Dean Cundy has been there since Halloween, shot The Thing, and he's shot Jurassic Park. He's shot Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's shot many a film of your childhood. That man is a workaholic, and one of the theories about the thing that Dean Cundy himself has stated that in certain shots, for the person that he thinks might be the thing, he'll shoot a catch light to where you can see like a little light glimmer in their eye. And so at the very end, when it's Kurt Russell and Keith David, like one of them gets that catch light. And so there's a theory as, like, who's the thing in the end? It could be that. Never confirmed by Carpenter, but the fact that Cundy's putting that much attention into detail for this thing proves that he's one of the all-time greats. Absolutely. Absolutely. You nailed it on the head. I love this movie so much. It's so incredible, and I've been dying to watch it again. But if I watch it again, I'm skipping the dog stuff because I I just can't put myself through that again. I, I really can't like people talk about how sad marley and me is when it comes to dog stuff and it absolutely <laughs> is people talk about i am legend and how sad it is with dog yes. stuff and it absolutely yes. is but this was honestly maybe the toughest dog yeah. scene i've ever had it's to watch on, in a film and it's no, like it really if you're if you're a heavy dog lover I mean, it's really going to hit you like a ton of bricks. All right, let's not talk about this anymore. I, I can't, I can't get sad, but go ahead. Say what you say your piece. If you're going to watch the original, I have to mark the same thing as well. Although there's a bunch of like, there's like a pack of really cute husky dogs. And like, if you watch them in the background, just not reacting to the other actors, it's so much funnier. But yeah, trigger warning for the dogs in the original too. If you think the 1950s, you're safe. No, no, be careful. Oh my God. 
God, why? Why can't people just treat dogs like amazing people? Why Why does this have to be how it goes down? I don't like it. I hate it. The cruel world. I really, I just can't stand that. Okay, so now our number ones. Our favorite remakes of all time. These are the remakes that we think about the most. These are the remakes that we celebrate the most when talking about them. So what is, Daniel, your favorite remake of all time? Yeah, you got that. The one I think about the most, the one I celebrate the most, is Fede Alvarez's 2013 Evil Dead. Wow. I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh one of the things that I was mentioning, and I did, really didn't want to give it away while I was talking about it, but when you talk about something that has the tone, the kind of the intangibles of the original, Sam Raimi's original Evil Dead is a grimy horror picture with a sardonic, like gleefully nasty bent to it in 1981 standards, of course. And Sam Raimi would evolve upon that. He would bring out more slapstick. And you, some people argue that Evil Dead 2 itself is a remake. I, I don't think it quite the same way, just because the characters aren't the same, and except for Ash, but whatever. And he evolves the slapstick. He goes more into fantasy with like Army of Darkness. But what I loved about Alvarez's Evil Dead is that it grabs the grime and it grabs just the nastiness of it. And it also has the humor bent in a way that like, this is post torture porn. This is post like Hostel and Saw and uh, the Alexandre Aha's Hill ha Hills Have Eyes. You know, stuff like that where it got really nasty for a while. We started seeing the rise of like real like extreme cinema uh, like I think Martyrs was like after this time, but like the thing with Evil Dead that I, I just absolutely love is like it opens like a motherfucker. It just bangs like watching that uh, woman be lit on fire because the, her dad knows that she's done. It's over. Like she's taken by the demon. And she goes, you motherfucker. I hope you so rotten. Like the distortion on her face, the blood screaming everywhere. It, it's, it's blood and it's fire and it's chaos. And Jane Levy cements herself as a scream queen. And one of the things I love about this franchise in general, I talked about Evil Dead Rise earlier on the podcast too. One of the things I love about that series is that their leads are always underrated, highly talented people. So you've got Bruce Campbell, who's basically a Looney Tune. Like, who else is going to grab his own hair, flip himself in a semicircle, in a cartwheel in the sky, and land on his ass with just in proper form? Who else is uh, going to just completely relish sort of like the ghoulish uh, nature of being a dead eye like Mia? You know, the scene where she's like under the stairs and like splitting her tongue with scissors like that gets me. There's uh, an added element that the original doesn't have where it's this sort of unreliable narrator of the person that becomes possessed because the whole point of the movie is that her friends are taking her into the cabin because she's hooked on drugs and they're trying to get her off. And so whenever she starts saying that there are some freaky deaky shit going around, they're just chalking it up to withdrawal symptoms. 
which is like an extra little flavor of like morality bent that just fills me with glee and it's weird talking about this movie while my kid is giggling in the other room i'm just letting you know that's like another weird surreality of my life right now but uh and then like Alyssa sutherland with this new one i think this is the that's the performance in this franchise where you don't have to put that much makeup on her like her face her body the way she's expressing herself that says everything but uh for this movie specifically, it's the one that I go back to most often. It is my favorite. Like, it's like Evil Dead 2 is here, and then Evil Dead 2013 is like right a skosh underneath it just because it is so vicious. It makes me laugh with like sick glee. There aren't many like shots of violence in a movie that get me to wince as much as that one knife through the cabin and then through Mia's leg. Like, the specific kinds of violence feel tailor-made to understand what would make an audience just shriek and gasp and be, like, shocked and terrified. And you know what? It's what a great horror movie is supposed to do. And so it's... I might be going to hell for having it, but I, I love it. I love Evil Dead, man. No, that's a very, very good pick. I got into the Evil Dead series just last year when Evil Dead Rise came out. I binged all the movies, and I really enjoyed the Evil Dead remake from Fetty Alvarez. I really liked that one a lot. And I agree with you, Jane Levy solidified herself as a scream queen there. And I also was a huge fan of Don't Breathe. I love Don't Breathe. I love that movie so, so much. And yeah, it's one of those scenarios to where it's so, it's pretty similar to the original film from the 80s that Sam Raimi did. But it also adds its own spin to it, which I really commend. And it's definitely... Not that the original film is scary by any means. It is terrifying, but it's definitely more goofy than this one. This one is like a straight-up horror film, and I think it works really beautifully. In terms of horror remakes, like modern-day horror remakes, it's one of the better ones that we have received because 90% oh, nice of the time when we get all these modern horror remakes, most of them suck. And this is one of the few ones that actually works really well on its own. And the fact that both Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were producers on it and were still involved with the project, it kind of gave me some optimism. And when I watched it, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it. Yeah, uh, this is one of those where uh, I find that some horror movies tend to want to get so dark, not in content, but in actual like lighting, that it ends up kind of fucking everything over. And one of my favorite scenes is the bathroom scene where the girlfriend's going insane because you've got these like ugly, like cheap fluorescent lights that shine the room almost in like white light as she's like mechanically trying to like stab her boyfriend and just the the chaos with which alvarez directs that and just sort of the, the we can't like a lot of attention is put on jane levy but we have to realize that if you're in an evil dead movie you have to act possessed and something about trying to seem like again your body is not your own if you can pull that off as an actor it's such a skill set to have 
whether it be something like for comedic effect, like what Bruce Campbell does, or whether it's something that uh, these characters do for just to show the horrificness of what they're dealing with. Uh, it's excellent. I mean, there are shots in this thing that I think of, like uh, Mia's head in like the bag sucked out of air, like the literal rain of blood, which I think for the longest time was by volume the most blood used in a movie ever. I think it's like over 50,000 gallons or something. I'm probably wrong on that, but whatever. Uh, just, man. It's one of those franchises that I love seeing something – again, something with the same start point. You start with like this Book of the Dead, people reading it, shit goes to hell. And I love watching how each of these people who have uh, chosen to you know, direct something in this, whether it be Sam Raimi or whether it be Lee Cronin or uh, Fede Alvarez, take that started point and take it on their own journey. And that's kind of what I want for my Evil Dead from now on. I don't mind waiting five to seven years if I can get somebody with a voice, with a vision, take the idea. Like, I, there was a part of me that wanted to like the next Evil Dead to be like Scream Sixified. Put it in a city. Put do the weird thing that uh, Halloween twenty eighteen did, and have somebody want the Book of the Dead to be read, and have somebody else fight against them. Have this weird like time after time like guy chasing Jack the Ripper serial killer type of thing deadites roaming all around town you know i feel like this is one of those franchises that as long as you stick to what i mentioned with those intangibles that the remake possibility of it is infinite because it depends on just entertaining us sickos and if us sickos can be entertained play have a sandbox do whatever you want and i think that's the beauty of remakes in general it allows you to take a singular idea and put it back into a sandbox and just ideally you take that simple idea and just play absolutely absolutely yeah that's a great great pick i love that movie and i'm really glad that we got to talk about it today and that leaves me to talk about my number one, which was your number two, and that is, yeah, of course, yeah, Martin Scorsese's yeah. 2006 Best yeah. Picture winner, the motherfucking Depatit. Notice that he didn't even pass. He didn't say pass. He just moved on. And when he moved on, I fucking knew it. I just fucking knew he had this movie on here. Let's go. <laughs> Okay, where do I even begin when talking about this movie? So it's so funny because this isn't even top five Scorsese films for me. It's top yeah, ten, but it's not it's not top five for me. I same. I I don't even know where to start. Um I just want to say that the original version, uh Eternal Affairs. That's a film that's incredibly high on my watch list. I have wanted to watch that film for years, years. I have been wanting to watch that for so fucking long. And this year, I have a goal to watch that film. Like That is a top priority in terms of first-time watches for me in 2024. I need to watch that so badly. But transitioning into this film, it was so interesting to see Martin Scorsese step out of his comfort zone of New York City and go and make a film that is set in Boston. Now, if you're like me, someone who not 
who doesn't live in New York but goes to New York a lot. New York and Boston love to rival each other, whether it's with their sports, whether it's with its people, and whether it's with its city. So having Martin Scorsese, who was like the king of New York films, make a film set in Boston is so out of left field for him. But what he's able to do is make this incredible crime, gangster, police, procedural thriller movie that finds a way of being so anxiety-inducing, that is so nail-biting, that is so exciting, that is so unpredictable, that is so riveting, that is so captivating. There are so many feelings that I have towards this movie. And from the moment I saw it over a decade ago to now, this to me is a masterpiece. Martin Scorsese is a course of goat. He has made some of the best films of all time. And I will say the fact that he won his first Oscar for this is really sickening in my opinion because he should have already had an Oscar long before this. Yeah. I think I think I think it's very cool that he got awarded for this movie. This is not a movie that I would expect to even be the Oscar player that it was. Right. The fact that it won Best Picture in a year where there was only five nominees is insane to me is absolutely insane because I guarantee that if this movie came out now, I mean, would it have been nominated? Of course, because it's a Martin Scorsese film, but say this was directed by a different filmmaker. Say this was someone's directorial debut. Would this film be recognized? I have no idea. Uh, yeah. If this was your debut with like, Holy shit, man. I get the performances. You can at this. Although again, I don't know how much of this would have worked without sort of Scorsese's tenements. And, you know, this is a Boston movie. It's different in location. But, I mean, DiCaprio is dealing with, you know, the guilt of the underworld the same way Harvey Keitel is in Mean Streets. Yeah, I was, and, you I know, was actually the, just about to make that comparison. I was just yeah. about to say that. I The thing that I really love about the movie, aside from Scorsese's direction and the screenplay, are these performances because – Everybody here is delivering some of the best work of their entire career. Leo should have been nominated for this. It's really absurd that he was not. He was nominated for the wrong film that year. And I like Blood Diamond. That's a very good movie. And I like him in that. But this was the far superior performance from him that year. Because I feel like the, the, some of his best work is here in this film. He is so broken having to constantly pretend to be a cop that's undercover with this group of uh, criminals and everything. And just like seeing the brokenness inside of him is just really insane to watch, especially during that therapy sequence with him and Vera Farmiga. I love that stuff so much. Uh, Matt Damon, I agree with you. Such a punchable, the most punchable that Matt Damon has ever been on screen. Although everyone seems yeah. to hate Matt Damon. I don't know why. Um, I love yeah. Matt Damon. So, you know, I may just be alone in that regard. But um, and then we get Mark Wahlberg, in my opinion, not my favorite Mark Wahlberg performance, but one of his best performances for sure. Um, and then we get all these other people, Anthony Anderson, Fear Farmiga, Alec Baldwin, Martin Sheen. But Jack Nicholson literally eats Frank Costello. What a fucking character, truly. Now, this yeah. was. 
Jack Nicholson's third to last film before he retired. And I have to say right now, if this had been his final film, it would have been one of the greatest swan songs for an actor ever. Did he fall? Did he get hit by the cat? Gabriel is really sad at the possibility of Jack Nicholson's swung song ever. You know what? This is one of the unavoidable lessons of life. You keep fucking around with the cat and you find out. But if you keep the camera rolling... Can, can we talk about that for a second? Just Jack Nicholson as a writer while being a performer, pulling that scene where he's talking about uh, where Frank has shot a woman and she's just like, oh, look, she fell funny. And so take those like little bits of dialogue and then immediately put it give it so much more fucked up context. Like the idea of a performer really sinking into their character and giving the director options to play with that to me is just the mark of a great collaborator, not just like a great performer, but somebody who understands the character well enough to, you know, we hear about like, Oh, we'll give, you know, do it by the script, maybe once or twice for two takes and then go ahead and let loose. But the way Nicholson like crafts that scene by like adding about like chopping her up or like pretending to like ask uh, Ray Winstone, Winstone, if he wants to fuck her one more time. You know, there's such dark little nuggets in there that when, you know, are helmed by Thelma Schoonmacher are scooped together into like the best versions of that deliciously like sick human being and just like generational talents like Nicholson are really generational in that sense. Yeah. Like he just I, knows what the movie needs. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, to, to go back to what I was saying before, uh, if this had been Jack Nicholson's final performance, um, it would have been what we regard Daniel day Lewis's work in Phantom Thread as one of the greatest swan songs for an actor ever put on screen. Um, and it was cool seeing him work with Scorsese because he had never worked with Scorsese before. And, you know, you would picture this role as maybe someone that maybe De Niro would have played. But the fact that someone like Jack Nicholson stepped into this role and played this character so beautifully. And then there was all these layers to Frank Costello, which I really respect. And one of the most tension-filled scenes in any Scorsese film and maybe any movie I've ever seen was that sequence in the alleyway where the phone starts ringing and then Leo's tracking down Matt Damon and everything. And Oh my God. So bonkers and everything. Also one of the coolest, um, one of my favorite sequences in a movie theater ever is in this movie, the little exchange between <laughs> Matt Damon and Jack Nicholson. I love that so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean the, the film really is masterful and the final act is extraordinary. Everyone talks about that final act Like, it's one of the best, and it really is. I mean, those final 30 minutes of the movie are unbelievable. 
It's a master it, at the height of his powers. It man. really is. I mean, everything like the writing, the directing, the editing. Th- Thelma might be the best editor ever, I think, in film history. I really think that there's an argument to be made that she is the best. And again, I cannot stress enough how good the dialogue is in this movie and some of the quips and everything thrown at people. I can't wait to wipe that fucking smirk right off your face. Wouldn't you rather wipe my ass for me? (laughs) Just, oh my God, so good, so good. Yeah, I love the movie. The twists and turns are absolutely impeccable. The acting, the writing, the directing, everything kicks so much ass. The film is long as fuck, but it earns that long runtime. It's so engrossing from start to finish. It's so cool that a film like this won Best Picture at the Oscars. It beat period pieces and historical dramas and biopics and everything. A freaking crime film took home the highest prize in Hollywood. And that, to me, is fucking awesome. So The Departed is my favorite remake of all time. There's so much to be said about this movie that has been said already. I have talked about this movie before on the podcast. I love it so fucking much. I really do. It's a masterpiece. I really adore The Departed. And I know there are people that don't love it as much as other Scorsese films. And again, it's not in my top five Scorsese films, but Scorsese has made more hits than misses, in my opinion. And this is a major, major, major. And this is a major. What does that say about the rest of the five? What does it say that this movie can sit on a list at number six or seven? Exactly. It means the great filmography, man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the motherfucking padded fucking rat is my number one remake of all time. So before we get into shouting out some remakes that didn't make the cut, let's recap our list from five to one. So Daniel, what is your list? Uh, Number five is Coda by Sean Hader. Number four is Chuck Russell's version of The Blob. Number three would be John Carpenter's The Thing. Number two is Martin Scorsese's The Departed. And number one is Fede Alvarez's remake of The Evil Dead. And to recap, my list coming in at number five is Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Number four is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Number three is Mike Nichols' The Birdcage. Number two is John Carpenter's The Thing. And number one, of course, Martin Scorsese's The Departed. So that is it with our list. So let's talk about some remakes that didn't make the cut. So what are some remakes that you want to give a shout out to that didn't make your top five list? All right, uh, let me go down a list that I wrote here. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, I gotta give an honorable mention to Red Dragon, which I like better than Manhunter. Seems like sacrilege to say that, but uh, I do. Uh, Michael Haneke's own remake of his own movie, Funny Games, I think is a great film. I'm a big fan of Baz Luhrmann's remakes, The Great Gatsby and Romeo and Juliet. Some of my formative pieces of media right there. Uh, I'm a, I really love Dario Argento's Suspiria, and Luca Guadagnino's is a great, like, remake. Like, you take a starting point and t- send it in a completely different direction. Oh, it's, shit. No, it's... it's it, fucking mine. No, you... I, 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 say, continue your list. I have so much to say <laughs> about Suspiria. I, I, I have two more. Uh, I actually really like Rob Zombie's original Halloween. Just in taking, again, start point, new direction, it's it's a Rob Zombie movie. If you're gonna vibe with Rob Zombie, you're gonna vibe with it. The fact that he took Michael Myers and gave him that sort of like psychological backstory and let that sort of like twisted childhood really form itself is solid. And then I'm off the deep and watch as I die. Like shot come on, Starsborn. Starsborn's great. 
there's a cut in Stars Born that's like one of the best cuts I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. It, it, you know the shot. Oh, you know I know. It's the oh, best I know. shot in the movie. Fucking Maddie Levitique, man. They, literally, I was, like, I, literally, I was like, fuck you, Bradley Cooper, for this. Like, literally, fuck you. <laughs> I think I felt the air leave my lungs. <laughs> I, was I know. So I know. I felt the same way. Oh, man. Okay, so that is obviously an honorable mention for me. Stars Born 2018 is fucking incredible, impeccable. Um, uh, the Fly from uh, David Cronenberg. Uh, starring my boy Jeff Goldblum, F- very very good film. Um, Dread from 2012 with Carl Urban, super underrated film, very very fun film. Uh, Insomnia, which I think is Christopher Nolan's most underrated oh, film. Oh, interesting. Um, where oh, Al Pacino, of course, plays a cop, and then Robin Williams plays one of his scariest roles to date. Love it. A very cool parent. Uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong from 2005. Respect. Uh, utilized three hours beautifully. Uh, Brian De Palma Scarface from the 80s. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that one very, very much. Um, Zack Snyder's directorial debut, Dawn of the Dead. I think that's another fantastic horror film as well. And that is one of the best directorial debuts from someone who's a pretty popular filmmaker. Say what you want about his films and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. The Coen Brothers remake of True Grit. Really, right. really solid Western. Uh, of course, Mark Waters, his first collaboration with Lindsay Lohan in Freaky Friday from 2003, <laughs> where Jamie Lee Curtis, and I will say this to the day I die, Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis should have been nominated for Best Actress for this movie, and this should have been the film that she won her first Oscar for, not everything, everywhere, all at once. And you're talking to a massive stand of everything, everywhere. So just, I have to right. get that out of the way. Um, in terms of some of the Disney remakes, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella from 2015, David Lowry's Pete's Dragon from 2016, as well as John Favreau's The Jungle Book from 2016, not The Lion King. Don't worry, that movie could go fuck off very much. Um, and then uh, 310 to Yuma from James Mangold, starring Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. The Mummy from 1999 with my boy Brendan Fraser. I almost put it on the list, but I don't think it's got the same characters as the 1932 movie which is what like i I saw some lists where people called the 2020 invisible man a remake i consider that a reboot yeah yeah that's definitely definitely a reboot story yeah yeah i love that Um, movie too the mummy definitely definitely um it chapter one i'm gonna put on the honorable mentions not chapter two i hated chapter two so much but i love it I, I look, I, I love just look. Too. I'm a huge Jessica Chastain stamp, but not everything she's in is a winner in my book, unfortunately. Um, Understandably, that movie's uh, fucking goofy as hell. The dinner Steve, table is so dumb. I love it. Ridiculous. Uh, Steve, <laughs> um, Steve, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's West Side Story from 2021. I thought that was a really fantastic okay. remake. Um, oh man, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, if you want to consider Casino Royale a remake, sure, we could count that as a remake. That's in my opinion, the best James Bond film. Um, Dune from 2021, of course. Yeah. So excited that chap- that part two is coming out in less than That's two months. We're so close to that. I'm so excited. Oh, we are, aren't we? And wow. the last one that I will mention is going to be... I am going to mention... 
because um, you and I talked off air about how I didn't even know this was a remake. Uh, Heat from Michael Mann. Oh, and one more shout out. And I need to go on a full tangent about this. Uh, Suspiria from 2018, directed by Luca Guanino. This almost made my top five list. It was actually nice. battling out for the number five spot. It was between that and Ocean's Eleven. I guess I really wanted to put something in different genres on the list. And if I had put okay. two horror films on the list, I that wouldn't have been fair for me. Um, three horror movies on my list tells you where my heart is. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's like where it's at for you. Um, but I I love Luca Guadagnino. I I think that I haven't seen everything he's done. But Call Me by Your Name literally changed my life. And then Suspiria I thought was great, and Bones and All was really great. I'm so excited for Challengers, which comes out later this year. That's and I'm good. I'm so excited for the film that he's also. I don't know if it's coming out this year or next year. Uh, Queer with Daniel Craig. I'm very excited to see that as well. Um, but yeah, this Suspiria remake. I, I, I again haven't seen the original. Um, oh man but the original's fun but this remake first of all probably my favorite dakota johnson performance uh second some of the most terrifying dance sequences that i've seen on screen probably since black swan third of all the makeup work here should have been nominated for an oscar because of what they did with tilda swin by making her look like a man and having me believe that it was a man the whole time when yet it was just Tilda Swin wearing makeup as a man. Should have won the Oscar. Should have should have won the Oscar. I have no idea what won makeup that year, but I'm not even going to bother One looking cares. it up right now. It's not Suspiria. It's not Suspiria, so it doesn't really matter. Um, masterful remake. Uh, masterful horror film. One of the best horror films of the last 10 years. Uh, to have Luca Guanino follow up Call Me By Your Name with that movie just comes to show how much of an artist he is. Beautiful and I love stuff. him so much. I really, really love the guy so much. So I'm not even going to bother looking up a list of upcoming remakes, but, you know, oh, God, I don't even know. Actually, one more remake that I want to shout out, a recent one, is All Quiet on the Western Front. I oh, yeah. I really really yeah. liked All Quiet That's on really the Western Front. I, I like really liked that one a lot, and uh, yeah. But um, you know, what are your closing thoughts on remakes before we uh, cap off this episode? I I I do my enjoy myself a good remake, but I only enjoy a good remake if it's a good movie. I don't want things to be remade. I don't want to have remakes constantly come in my way. But if they're under the hands of a talented filmmaker and they assemble a really great cast and a good screenplay alongside of it, then perhaps we could get some good. So what are your final thoughts on remakes? Look, if you're a filmmaker remaking a movie, the first and foremost should be just make a good movie. It, it It's just as simple as that. Make a good movie, even if it varies wildly from the original even if it sticks to it really closely if you're able to just make a film that stands on its own as like a solid flick as an entertaining flick as an educational or something that inspires or you know anything if it's your vision and you want to see it even if nobody else likes it just i, I like the idea of somebody taking a movie that they love or maybe don't love and then just like put their own spin on it put your own spin on it you know make a good movie first and foremost 
and you know the rest be damned you know the thing that depressed me so much about that lion king remake was not the cg animal thing you know the cg animal thing is fine it's just what's behind it where's the soul like where's the the joy in the lion king remake there there really wasn't any it really it felt pointless because that sort of like excitement of seeing a young cub come into his own in the spectacle that we originally saw that was gone and so when the spectacle is gone and the tragedy doesn't work the same way you know you got to make a movie that works on its own and just you know that that's why that movie doesn't work and so if you're going to remake something make it good on its own and even if you are going to take the original nugget of an idea and then throw the rest of the continuation out the window, as long as it's good, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to enjoy it. 100%. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on to the show today to talk to me about movie remakes. I'm glad that I finally got to have you on the show. It was an absolute blast getting to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. It's been a long fucking time coming, and I'm grateful to finally you know, make my debut on this. Gabe, do not touch the dish soap. I'm keeping that in for to the episode for context. People are not going to understand what that means, but I'm going to keep it in the episode anyway. So, Daniel, tell the listeners where they can find you online. Where can they find your work? You can find me on Twitter. I refuse to call it by the other name, at the movies underscore pod. You can find me on Instagram at the movies pod, and you can find me on Blue Sky at, I think, the movies pod as well. Every link is going to be in, like, my podcast player episodes. You can find the movies on most podcast players, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I think Google Podcasts, too, and all that. I've got a link tree. We can put the link tree below, and then y'all can find everything I've done. I will put links for all those links in the description below. That sense made no sense. The point is, go follow Daniel <laughs> and his work, please. Definitely do yourself a favor and go check out his content. And you guys can follow me on all social media platforms at Brian Stuffield. You guys can subscribe to the show on any podcast platform. Rain reviews, share this around, and share it with your friends, fellow film fans, people who aren't into fans. Just share this around. Pretty please. Thank you so much. Mwah. We have a Twitter and Instagram, so you guys can stay up to date with what's going on in Film Fragments. Let us know your favorite remakes. I'm very curious to hear you guys' list. Thank you guys again for listening to this episode. We have a lot of great topics come your way. Lots of great guests, lots of great episodes. So be on the lookout for that. And I will see you guys for the very next episode of Film Fragments. Take care, everybody.